0: Turn, please, uh, to Ezekiel in chapter 13. Ezekiel in chapter 13. If you haven't brought a Bible, we haven't any pew Bibles. But we haven't any pews. So, we're sunk. Ezekiel chapter 13, I want to read verses 1 through 16. And it is our habit to pray before we read, so please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. We need most especially light from the Spirit of God to help us. So I pray that you would enable us to see truth, for it is here, for this is your word. So I pray that you would enable us and help us, and that you would work even now, on this evening, at this time, in us, for your glory and for the benefit of the Church of Jesus Christ and even us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying. And say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirits and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel you have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They've seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered, uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and and seen lying visions, therefore behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely, because they have misled my people, saying, Peace. When there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord." it 's always difficult for me personally to know what to preach at Presbytery. Those of you who have filled my shoes on these occasions know what that 's like. The difficulty for me at least first there 's the great fear of preaching to peers <clears throat> that I always feel in these occasions secondly there 's this uh, sense of, of of presumption to do so to think that I could have anything to say into the lives of at least many of you that I know, when me on my best day uh, is probably you on your worst. So I don't know quite know how to preach or what to say. But I believe very strongly, as you all know, I suppose, in the great power of God's Word and worship. And so I really believe something happens at these times. I begin to think about all that we need especially those of us here for this meeting, what we, what we need in the context of ministry and the life of, of the church, encouragement, I suppose, and yet challenge, we need strength to persevere, yet wisdom to know what to do at various points uh, in, in life, various points in ministry. Certainly we need greater faith in Christ, in the very Word of God. We need a clearer understanding of God's Word, because from it comes our knowledge of God, which brings faith and strength and perseverance. We need to learn, as Bunyan said in his little autobiography, to live on God, and we do that by knowing His Word. Most certainly we need to pray, not simply for the discipline of praying, but because we need so much. As we find the calling, the task that is most certainly before us, impossible. And so, I did what I most always do when I try to find a text to preach, and that is I simply go t- to the next one. And I began preaching Ezekiel, it's occupational hazard of being in a church a long time, you end up in Ezekiel. <laughs> but I, I found myself in Ezekiel these days with our own congregation, and I and, and don't know quite why, except that I've had this burning desire to make certain in my own life, as far as is possible, that I know God. Not simply a fragmented God of this passage or that, but to know the God of the whole Bible. And I try to make certain in my own life, as many of us do in our congregation, we follow various reading schedules to make sure we're reading from Genesis to Revelation on a regular basis. I've been following for years and years the McShane little readings that many of us ...do that gets us through the scripture and some of it a couple of times every year. I preach expositorily through books to make sure that we get as broad a breath of who God is as possible. But I had to challenge myself and say, do I know the God of Ezekiel? Do I know God the way Ezekiel knew God? And each year as I read through Ezekiel, and, and I find great comfort here. Karen is always worried when I'm in the basement in my office study reading Ezekiel out loud to myself. She's thinking, what's going on? But I found comfort here, but I, I wonder, do I know this God the way Ezekiel did. And in one sense, the answer is yes, because we have the word of the prophets made more certain since Christ has come. But yet, in order to understand Christ, I must understand God, even as Ezekiel did. And so I began to take up Ezekiel in our own worship times on Sunday morning. So I've said all that to simply say this, we're in Ezekiel 13, because I finished chapter 12 on Sunday. But it seems rather providential, doesn't it? But here we find ourselves, Ezekiel, talking about prophets. Now, I'm not going to get into any of the difficulties there may be to correlate Old Testament prophets to New Testament elders, simply to say that there's enough, it seems to me, commonality between both callings that we can find something here that's very helpful. And even if that isn't your particular calling, still it's significant because all of us in the life of the church have been given those whom God has called to come and speak truth. And therefore, I believe it's important for us and helpful for us uh, to see all of this. So notice what Ezekiel has to say about these prophets at this particular moment in time. Notice verse 8, the middle of it, the end of it. He says, I am against you not an encouragement, declares the Lord. And he's going to bring judgment against these particular prophets Notice verse 9, he says, My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people. That is to say, they're going to lose their position. They're going to lose their call. They're going to lose their office. They're going to lose this honor that they have as being prophets. Nor, he says, be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, meaning, of course, that they're going to lose their rights as citizens in Israel. And then he goes on to say, nor shall they enter the land of, of Israel. You might remember that Ezekiel is a prophet of the exile. He's in exile. There have been a couple of exiles out of Jerusalem already, and uh, Ezekiel was in one of those, and now he's in exile. He's in Babylon, 700 uh, miles or so uh, from Jerusalem, when 700 miles was the length of the earth, and so he's so far away, and, and, and yet there's this question of the remnant. Who will go back to Jerusalem? Who will occupy Jerusalem? What's going to happen? And he says, these prophets who are prophesying in Jerusalem will not be the ones. They won't be a part of that remnant come so the question is then then why why such a devastating word against these these particular prophets and of course it's because in verse 10 he says Prec- precisely because they've misled my people so they've been misleading the people as opposed to leading rightly uh, the people the people of God and in what way then have they been misleading the people notice He's been, he says that they say, peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. You see, Ezekiel, by God, is using a particular illustration, a wartime illustration. It's a good illustration. It serves a dual purpose, not only to make his point about the prophets, but also because in just a few years from the time this is all happening, and Ezekiel hearing this word, in a few years from then, uh, the Babylonians will come against Jerusalem, and they, they will bring a siege against the city and all of that. And so Ezekiel is able to contrast that or compare that to what's happening with these spiritual prophets. And what's happening in this context, you see, is that, that in, in, wartime, in wartime military leaders can help their people in a couple of different ways. Number one, they can assess the mood of the enemy. Is the enemy ready to strike or not? That's very important to know. Secondly, they can assess the quality of the defense of the city. Are we ready? is the wall in that context, in that case, their major line of defense, is the wall strong? And of course, a a bad military leader will lie about these things. An irresponsible military leader won't know, but simply say something. And if, in fact, the mood of the enemy is to strike, but yet the military leaders say he's not going to strike, or if the wall is filled with cracks and easy to get through, and the military leader said, oh, no, don't worry, the wall's fine, let's just put another coat of paint over it, then of course the people are in great danger, perhaps the greatest danger, because they'll do nothing to deal with their problem, nothing to deal with the danger that's facing them and so Ezekiel says of these prophets, it's the same with them. There is great danger. They've assessed the mood and they've said everything is fine, but it isn't. They've looked at the wall and they've simply painted over it. They've smeared it with whitewash. Notice, verse 10, verse 10 again. Precisely because they've misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? That is to say, it didn't help. It didn't work. It simply covered up. It didn't really help. Therefore, says the Lord God, I will make a stormy windbreak out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end, and I'll break down the wall uh, that you've smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid, laid laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Thus, I will, thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash and I will say to you the wall is no more nor those who smeared it the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace declared the Lord. You see the problem really in Jerusalem is not the Babylonians. It's God. He's the one who's going to come against them. He's the one they need to be prepared to meet. He's the one, the prophets, should have been preparing the people to meet all the while. But they haven't been. In fact, the prophets in these days have led the people into the worship of idols. And the very temple itself were idols. In fact, the scripture says in another vision that Ezekiel saw a couple of chapters ago, when God took him from where he was to see into Jerusalem, no small feet. He saw there, in the midst of the temple, an idol, the scripture says, that provoked the Lord to jealousy. Right in the midst of the temple were idols. And of course it provoked the Lord to jealousy, as a lover would be provoked when the affection of his beloved is attracted to another. Yes, jealousy, and not only that, this righteous jealousy, the jealousy of God himself for the honor of his own name, pure righteousness. And thus it provoked him to jealousy, and we see now that the people are not so much in difficulty with the Babylonians, although they'll be used in the hands of God, but what the people are really in trouble with, the great danger they find themselves, is with, in fact, God. Because, you see, the prophets are telling the people "Simply, simply paint over the difficulties, paint over the cracks, paint over the vulnerabilities, but no change within. And why are they doing this? Notice in chapter 13 and verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins of Israel. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for those of the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. You see what's coming is the day of the Lord the very wrath of God against the people it's the prophet's job to prepare the the people for this day of the Lord and we understand the day of the Lord eschatologically and that day which is to come the great day of judgment and all of that but this most certainly is a shadow of that which is to come and the prophets were to prepare the people for that particular day and I must confess that upon reading this I was terrified And quite sobered to think in the utter reality of of our lives in the context of ministry. The great responsibility that exists for we're to prepare people for the day of the Lord. It doesn't boil down to church dinners. It doesn't boil down to how many people are showing up. It doesn't boil down to how many people are, are coming or giving or what the building looks like or what the building is like or any of that. It doesn't even come down to whether marriages are happy or if our kids are staying off of drugs and not involved in premarital sex or whether people are out of debt because they're following the best financial principles that our latest little weekend seminar did for them. That's it's about preparing our people to stand in the day of the Lord. And these particular prophets in this particular day didn't do it because, you see, rather than warn the people, rather than speak truth to the people, rather than speak what God had said to the people, they simply said everything's fine and then they repainted the walls. But, of course, we know that it isn't repainting that gets it done. It's repenting. The difference is great. To repaint simply means to cover over. There's nothing that really changes. There's no change of mind when one repaints. It's simply the same mind with just a different cover. There's, there's no change of heart when we simply repaint. There's no change of direction. There's no change in desire. It's all the same. And yet what the people needed to, to face the day of the Lord was to repent, was to turn from all their sin, to turn from the worship of idols, and to turn to follow God. Because in real repentance there is a change of mind. There is a change which says I am, not only I've been wrong, but I'm wrong and I'm against God. There is a change of heart that says I don't want to embrace this life anymore. That's wrong. There is a change of desire that says I want to turn from this and embrace God. There is a change of direction. And all that was happening was there was more coating going on the outside, and it continued to look better and better and better. And you get the impression, and I don't know how literal to take this, I don't know if it's a figure or literal, let's take it literally because it's, 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 it's just as helpful, if not more so. But just think about this situation, that, that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. There have been two exiles from it already. The city's in horrible condition, and they're painting. And it's looking prettier and prettier. And it's looking more attractive and more attractive. You can just see real estate prices going up. You can see people just as they were saying, now's the time to build houses because everything's fine. And others were saying, listen, uh, these words of doom from the prophets, they're really not going to happen because they never really happen. They've been saying this for such a long time. And if it does happen, it's certainly not going to happen in our particular generation. It's going to happen some other generation. So let's build houses, let's keep painting, let's spruce it up, let's make it pretty because everything's fine and yet it's crumbling on the inside. Ah, the prophets. Now contrast that. With Ezekiel himself. If you're familiar at all, and I know our folks are because because they just are, but if you're familiar with this prophecy, remember in chapter 1 that Ezekiel sees this vision of God. That's where it begins for him. He begins with this great vision of God and he sees God upon a throne and the throne is carried on a platform of pillars and wheels. And what he sees here, you see, is God who is the king because he's on a throne. And what he sees here is the holiness and the purity of God because there's fire in this structure that's holding up this throne. And he sees the great omnipresence of God because these wheels can go in any direction and these wheels can take it wherever it so desires. He sees the omniscience of God because in these wheels are eyes all over the place. So God sees everything. He sees the very power, the omnipotence of God because he hears a great voice and it's the very voice of God Almighty. And when Ezekiel sees all of that, his his, his first response is to fall flat on his face before God. Because you see, when he sees all of that, he's completely humbled before God. Because he does, in fact, see the sovereignty of God, the power of God, everything. And it puts him on his ground because at that moment in time, you see, he understands his own sin and his own bankruptcy before God. He looks at himself, no doubt, in in comparison to God, looks at himself morally and sees that he's morally bankrupt. What can he offer at all, comparing God's purity and God's holiness and his own? He looks at himself intellectually and he sees the great wisdom of God and the omniscience of God and he compares his own wisdom with God and it doesn't compare, obviously. He looks at his own strength and he looks at the very power and strength of God and of course there's no comparison, morally, intellectually, physically spiritually bankrupt, he finds himself before God, and thus you see there can be no no arrogance in him. Because he knows, because he's seen God, that he has nothing really to offer. See these other prophets, they never they never saw God like that. They never saw themselves in comparison to him because they were looking at well, they were looking at themselves. And they looked pretty good. And they were looking at the people and they looked pretty good and they were looking at these idols and they were never humbled by those because they came from their own hands. And Ezekiel saw God and when he did, it humbled him. And you see, no one, no one can speak on behalf of God until they realize they have no words to say other than the words that God gives. And so you see, the Spirit of God then comes upon Ezekiel and enables Ezekiel to stand. That's how Ezekiel is able to stand in the presence of God. It's because the Holy Spirit comes and lifts him up and raises him before him, gives him ears to hear, gives him a a word to speak. And here's what he says. Notice if your Bibles are open Ezekiel chapter 2. He comes to Ezekiel in a difficult parish, because he says these people are rebellious and they won't hear you. And in in verse 9 of chapter 2, we read, And when I looked up, that is, Ezekiel looks up, when I looked up, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And so he sees this scroll front and back very odd almost always scrolls were only written on one side but front and back had a lot to say and had no room for Ezekiel to add anything it was all of God mourning and woe well, verse 1 chapter 3 and he said to me son of man eat whatever you find here eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel so I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and he said to me son of man feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and your stomach with it then I ate it And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now that's interesting, given the very fact that in this scroll was lamentation and woe and mourning. But yet, as he ate it, it was in fact very sweet. Then notice verse 7. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. God has told them to go speak to them. they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like Emery, harder than Flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your hearts and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people and speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord, whether they hear or refuse to hear. So he eats the scroll and it's sweet, sweet. And God says, but they're not going to listen to you, but that's all right because you won't be swayed because I'm going to make your, I'm going to make you as stubborn as they are. They're stubborn in a rebellious way. I'm going to make you stubborn for this word that I give you. And then finally, in verse 14, it says, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I wept, went in bitterness, anger really, and the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And so now we see Ezekiel moving from sweetness to stubbornness, and also though with a measure of anger. What's all that mean? Well, it's difficult to know, so I consulted D.A. Carson. Here's what he said. He said, what this means is that this good called prophet of God, to be a prophet of God, not only had to see a vision of God and be humbled by that, but also then needed to sympathize, empathize, identify with God and his word. So much so that even though it was a word of judgment to Ezekiel, it was sweet, And even though there would be people against him making life very difficult for him, he would stick to it because God would make him stick to it because he would so identify that this word is true and every man a liar. And not only that, but even in his own spirit, he would identify with God's judgment upon sin to be angry even at the sin, the rebellion against God. And thus, you see, this prophet needs to see God and be humble and not rely upon his own words and that which comes from himself, but rely upon God and the word that God gives. He must be lifted up by the very Spirit of God and called by him, and given ears to hear and a heart to follow. And not only that, he must identify with this very truth of God and speak it even in the midst of these great and serious difficulties. And I think that though the events of Ezekiel's life and the context of his life and the time period of his life is different than ours. Still we speak in a time when people are not all that receptive to the Word of God. Still we speak in a time when they make it difficult for us to really speak the truth. And it's very difficult to be swayed. In fact, there's so many things that come against us. There are are pastoral moments and suffering that take place in the lives of our people. Suffering that takes place in the lives of people who are walking with God. And it's a great difficulty in how to explain it. And how is it that we're going to explain these things? And even in those moments, we must find a sweetness in the gracious decree of God, which brings suffering. And we must find sweetness in the wonderful providence of God that brings it at certain moments to certain people and not be tempted at all to back away from that and accept a God who doesn't know the future, a God who isn't sovereign over it, and a God who is simply responding to us and the decisions that we make. Not only that, but even as we contemplate a passage like this, and realize that judgment is real. And even though we begin to think about how devastating Hell must be. And I don't know about you. But even as I think about... people... suffering... eternally... under the wrath of God... in hell, it's almost more than I can think about. But yet... we must find... even this side of glory certain sweetness in the holiness and the righteousness of God the worth of God that makes him such that any rebellion against him because he's worth so much and because he is so holy that any rebellion against him results in that kind of eternal punishment and we never should then be tempted to back away from embracing the reality of hell and accept that perhaps there's another way other than Christ or that even souls may be annihilated at a certain moment in time. It's very difficult as we all know to share with people about the great sovereignty of God in salvation, how it is that He elects some and not others, and still hold that with the very truth of the fact that we're responsible for our own sin, even though it's a condition in which we were born. And yet, we must still in the midst of that tension, in the midst of that mystery, hold to the sweetness of the sovereign decree of God to save, and to call, and to regenerate, and to justify and to sanctify, and to glorify, and take great hope and great assurance in all of that. There's a great temptation in these days to yield to the voices that tell us as believers that we're intolerant, that we're bigoted, that we're narrow, because we say that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through faith in Christ alone. In fact, now it appears to me, we have to not only say faith in Christ alone, but faith in Christ only, that is to say, that that is the only way. And while we're criticized tremendously for that, we must be careful not to be tempted to back away, not to be tempted to simply wash it over, not to be uh, be careful not to simply paint it over, but to be honest to find sweetness, since Christ is the way. And faith in Him always, always works... for He turns none away who come to Him. There's others who say that this word about obedience... about following after Christ seems to be legalistic... or it seems to be harsh... and no one really likes to hear these commandments to follow them. Yet, we must understand that when we're called to believe... and when God changes our hearts and we do come to faith... That means with it that we'll desire to follow after Him and His his commands to us are no longer a burden, right? But a delight and a joy. So we must guard because we identify with the truth of God more than we identify with the criticisms of people. We must identify and sympathize with the truth of God more than we identify with the desire to be liked by people in our communities and our culture. We must identify with the truth of God. Our heads must be as stubborn and as single minded. As single minded as theirs. And then finally, in the life of Ezekiel, we find that God wants to make perfectly sure that Ezekiel understands what it is to be a prophet and that you only speak the words of God. And so, in the end of chapter 3, verse 26, God says, And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. He who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. In other words, Ezekiel... You're only to speak what I loosen your tongue. And you're only to speak that which I give you. Thus, I think we understand why it is that when Paul went to Corinth, he said, I, I, you know, I really only want to know one thing about you. And what I want to know about you is Christ and him crucified. And that, you see, is, is our charge. But none of us must enter until first we've seen God and honestly been humbled by him. None of us can enter upon it until first we've seen God and we realize our own bankruptcy. That we have no words to say about him but the words that he gives. For he is the only one who can speak well of himself. And so he must tell us, he must teach us, he must show us who he is that we might speak that truth. We have to come to so firmly identify, sympathize with that word of God that it's sweet to us and we're single-minded about it and we identify with even God's emotions concerning all that is true, all that is true in it. Because, you see, what we're charged with, what we're charged with, the responsibility that we have is to enable people to stand on the day of the Lord. see, our problem isn't cancer. Our problem isn't political. Our problems aren't war. Our problems aren't nuclear holocaust. The problems of human beings is facing God. And we, you see, as the people of God, have the Word and the power, the Word and Spirit, that enables people to stand against the wrath of God, if you will, to stand on that day and not be destroyed by God, but to be accepted and embraced by him. And we know that word, you remember, on the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we remember, to he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he took this cup and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for, many, for, for, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle tells us, therefore, that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the word. How is it that anyone can stand on the day of the Lord? Only, you see, if one's sins are forgiven. Only, you see, if one is covered in righteousness. We must never miss the gloriousness the awesomeness of God in the cross, because therein we see, and I never tire of this I say this all the time, I think this all the time, because I never tire of thinking about the fact that in the cross is the wisdom and power of God, that in the cross all of all of it meets, because we see therein the very justice, the holiness, the purity of God, because he must his wrath must come against sin it has to he's righteous and holy but he's gracious and loving and in his graciousness and in his love he pours pours his wrath out upon another even his own son that's the word how is it? that one stands in the day of the Lord, one stands in Christ, that is to say, one stands forgiven. That is, one stands believing in what Jesus has done. We believe in who He is, but we believe, we trust in what He has done. I need, we need what Christ did. He did something. He lived righteously on our behalf that we might trust and receive His righteousness. He died on our behalf, taking our sin that we who trust in Him might be forgiven. That, you see, is the word. That's the word we have. That's the word we have that brings people to repentance, that turns them away from their own sin, that brings them to faith in Christ, that enables them to stand on the day of the Lord. And if ever we get distracted, if ever we forget that, if ever we back off of that. If ever we fail to preach that, to teach that, to live that, all we're doing is smearing paint, whitewash. But when we preach it, and when we teach it, and when we live it, then we're building up the wall. We're strengthening that wall for assurance on the day of the Lord. Pray with me, Father in heaven. We thank you for that word which is above all earthly powers. For we give them no thanks. For we give thanks to this word concerning the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, I pray even now as we face this table and make our way to it, that you would take this bread and this juice, forever it always shall remain bread and juice. But I pray, Father, that you would take it, set it apart, and enable us to meet, to fellowship with, to feed upon by faith our Lord Jesus, who is here, I pray, Father, as we do that, that you will in fact seal to us the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, for any who are here who have been hurt by prophets and shepherds and elders, that even in these moments, that you will enable them to see past, get past all that and see Christ our chief shepherd and enjoy him. for those who are teachers, preachers, elders. I pray you would enable us to be built up in faith, to understand not simply the responsibility you have, but the great opportunity we have, and that you would do with us as you did Ezekiel, and that is that you would make your word sweet in our mouths, all of your word, that you would grant to us You would grant to us a spiritual hard-headedness that would not allow us to deviate from your truth, that nothing else would attract us, nothing else would captivate us, nothing else would move us but your truth, and we pray that you would enable us to identify with you and all that is true of you, and that we would speak this word, declare this word, preach this word, live this word, so that we and all those with whom we come in contact will be strengthened for the day of the Lord and that we'll have the great privilege in all of eternity to rejoice together and then we'll see it then we'll know and then we'll know with eyes that can really see the great truth which you've given to us and we trust which we will declare and live so bless now I pray this meal to us and most certainly us to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your mercy and compassion. Father, we thank you that you are the one who defines our lives and directs our lives, the one upon whom we are utterly and completely dependent. And we thank you that you are our utter delight. For following you is no burden, but it's the great joy of our lives. I pray that you would enable us to continue to walk with you. and Those who lead are able to lead by the Spirit of God, and that this word would ever be on our lips and lives. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction, as you do. Um, Just a reminder to the presbyters who are here, 7 o'clock breakfast. I might be overstating it, 7 o'clock continental breakfast, whatever that means. And uh, 8 o'clock is the meeting. I I don't think there are any committees meeting tonight. If you need to meet, uh, let me know, and I'll give you a key. And uh, you can do that to your heart's content as long as you wish to stay. I'll pronounce a benediction, and then after which uh, we'll sing this great praise of God, the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the everlasting covenant equip you with every good thing for doing his will working in us, that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together, let us sing.